Hi everyone, this is Mike, and welcome to another episode of Singing for Survival, the Capoeira History Podcast. This episode has been kind of a long time coming. Um, it's getting a little more difficult to keep up with a, with a good schedule on this, just as um, my own group has been growing, um, which has been awesome. But, you know, definitely takes a lot more of my time. Uh, so I'm trying to find a good rhythm where I can still work on this podcast and put things out in a semi-regular way. Um, a lot of that is really because of the people I've been meeting now that the Capoeira community is kind of coming back to life again after the pandemic. So in the past probably six months, um, I've been traveling for work and I've been going to events as they've been starting to happen again. And it's been kind of a, a crazy experience to meet people who, um, who already know about the podcast that I've never met before um, and just talk with them about their, their experience with it, the things they've taken from it, um, the things they like about it, the things they want to see. It's, it's really, really motivating for me um, just getting feedback from people like that. So really a, a lot of thanks to all the people who have uh, sent messages to me, who people I've met in the, in the past several months, um, who've talked to me about it. It, it's, it is really helpful for keeping me going, especially when, you know, the, the press of life comes in and it, it gets difficult to prioritize. So um, I just wanted to say I really appreciate it, and I look forward to meeting even more people um, who are listeners as, as we go out and, and do more events. So in today's episode, I want to talk about arguably the most important instrument in the Capoeira Bateria, the Birimbao. The Birimbao is an instantly recognizable symbol of Capoeira in the modern day, and in most circles, leads the Hada itself. At some point, we all learn how to play this instrument, and we see it in every hada we attend. But in some ways, there are questions about the instrument itself that we, we kind of take for granted, just because it's always been there throughout our, our kapwada lives. Things like, where did the instrument originate from? When and how did it get to Brazil? Has it always been in kapwada? If not, when and why did it make its way in? Um, this episode, we're going to dig into some of those kind of questions, uh, really taking a look at what actually is the Birimbao and what can we learn about its history and what does that mean for, uh, for what it means in Capoeira today. Just to set expectations, uh, I won't be talking about playing techniques or the different talkies and their meanings and applications. There are tons of resources available for those kinds of things already. Uh, if you're interested, you can check out some of the work that uh, uh, Messi Mutu Tempo and Messi uh, Mia Vela have been doing. Um, it's really, really cool stuff. Uh, so instead, I want to really take a focused look into what this instrument actually is and learn about its history. Olha que me é gostoso 
So let's start with the question, what is a Birimbao in today's Capoeira world? Almost anybody even tangentially related to Capoeira can probably recognize the Birimbao. It is the symbol for the art, and we can find it in logos, graphics, tattoos. Basically, everywhere you see Capoeira reference, you'll see the Birimbao not too far away. So what is a Birimbao anyway? Well, according to the song we just listened to, it is uma cabaça, uma arame e pedaço de pão. A gourd, a wire, and a piece of wood. As far as instruments go, this is about as simple as it gets. A single string musical bow with a gourd as a resonator. Um, a little later we'll dig into the history of these bows as we know it, but first let's take a look at the actual parts of the bow, starting with a cabaça. So the resonator for the bow is a hollowed out gourd attached to the bow with a waxed yarn called a hummy. The most common type of gourd is a, a kind of double lobed gourd where the smaller lobe is cut off and the larger becomes the resonator. The gourd is dried out and hollowed out of all seeds and then sanded clean. The size of the opening that's then cut into the gourd is really critical. If you make it too small, you'll stifle the sound that comes out, too large, and the player can't effectively mute it when they pull it back uh, into their stomach. Uh, and this exact size is much more art than science. Um, it's related to the size and contour of the gourd and also you know, the, the type of, uh, or really the rest of the instrument that you're marrying it to. Uh, but finally, Two small holes are drilled opposite the main opening of the cabasa to allow the hummy to pass through uh, and to tie to the rest of the bow. Now there's a lot more that people do with cabasas in terms of how they decorate them, um, the really specific things that they, they do to prepare, but the, at, at a really basic level, that's what we're dealing with. Next, we have the arami, or the wire that's struck when you play the bow. This wire is typically the length of the bow plus two palm lengths and has a loop on either end. The loop on one end is secured to the bottom end of the bow and a length of twine is tied to the other end to allow the player to arm the beaten bow and secure the wire under tension. The tension that's applied to the arami is unique to each beaten bow and much like the preparation of the cabasa is learned really only through experience with each individual instrument. Today, aramis are made from metal wire, but originally they were made from plant fibers or wool. Early metal aramis were made from fence wire, uh, and then when motor vehicles became more common in Brazil, tire wires became the popular arami material, um, which I, I think mo most people hear stories about that at some point when they're coming up in Capoeira. But one detail that not everyone knows is critically, those aramis have to be cut out of the tires and you cannot burn them uh, out. Burning the tire makes the wire brittle and much more liable to snap. Uh, so for people thinking that it might be an easier way to get it out, it, it actually doesn't work that way. These wires were then oiled and sanded every about 15 days to prevent rust and to maintain their quality. Today, we still use metal arami wires, though it's much more common to use wire bought in rolls. Um, one, because this is a much easier way to get it, um, but also modern tire wires have actually become a little bit too thick 
they're not quite the right uh, gauge that uh, that produces a nice sound. So uh, it's driven more people to use a uh, a rolled wire, kind of like a piano wire, where you have a lot of more you have a lot more selection over the exact gauge of the wire that you're getting. Finally, we come to the piece of wood or the verga that holds the structure of the instrument and creates the tension in the arami. Since at least the time of Pascina, biriba is the primary wood chosen. Uh, it's harvested during a new moon and cut to a length of seven palm lengths. Uh, some older messages also specify uh, 1.1 to 1.2 meters uh, and stripped of its bark. The wood is then sanded and then it can be sealed or painted. Uh, another interesting technique, uh, Messi Kanjikina used to rub the verga in uh, animal fat, leave it overnight, and then pass it through fire the next day, quote, so that it doesn't sprout. Most birimbaos we see today are simply varnished after they're sanded, but we also see painted birimbaos of many different types. Mestri Bimba only used varnish on his birimbaos, and um, I've heard stories that some before his time didn't even remove the bark. But in the 1940s, uh, Mestri Valdemar de Paixão popularized painting birimbaos. Uh, he was also the first to start selling them uh, in the, the Liberdade district in, in the same decade. Um, today we see lots of different ways people um, decorate their birimbaos. I know Mestre Tosinho has, uh, has become pretty popular uh, in the way that he particularly decorates his. So um, I think we will continue to see more and more uh, variation in how uh, how people decorate birimbaos as, as we go forward. I feel that people are becoming a little bit more willing to experiment with how uh, they make their birimbaos, which I think is awesome. Uh, but getting back to it, the bottom end of the verga is prepared in uh, one of two ways. The older way is to make the end pointed, which historically also made it usable as a weapon. Um, I've heard some stories that suggests that rather than these being most used as actual spears, uh, they were more used to uh, jab, say, like police cavalry. Like if you jab the horse, you can startle it a little bit and it made it easier for people to get away. Um, but it's not entirely clear. But Messi Bimbo used this style, and schools which follow his tradition today still maintain that. Um, and not just them. There's plenty of other... Uh, Birimbao manufacturers that keep that pointed end. Others use a flat end that has a little step cut into it, which allows the arami loop to be secured around. Uh, I'll say this is probably more common today. Uh, I tend to see more manufacturers using the step uh, and was perhaps pioneered by Messi Valdemar, who said that he used the style, quote, because it's more civilized. The top end of the verga is cut flat, and a circle of leather is secured uh, to the top with two nails. The leather helps hold the arami in place when the beaten bow is armed, and prevents the wire from cutting into the wood. And with that, we've assembled our beaten bow. Uh, but that's not all that's really required to play the instrument. The baqueta is a striker used to vibrate the arami, and is another piece of wood, uh, smaller, almost like a drumstick, 
slightly wider on one end to make it easier to hold. Uh, traditionally, this was also biriba. However, today you can find them in all different types of wood. And honestly, if you've been playing birimbao long enough, you've probably used some weird materials as a paqueta when you've, when you've uh, misplaced yours. I've seen people use metal straws. I've used pencils and pens. Um, people get really creative with that kind of stuff. The hand that holds the birimbao also has a pedra or a dobrão, a rock or a coin that is pressed into the arami to change the tone of the bow. It is most likely that earlier on in the history of using the birimbao and capoeira, um, stones or metal lighters were, were the most common uh, to be used as the, as the pedra. And this is, this is because the dobrãos are the uh, equivalent of a 20 or 40 ice coin, which was probably prohibitively expensive in that time. So it's likely that the use of the dobrão, so it's likely that the use of the dobrão or the use of the coin is a bit of a, a more recent uh, adaptation. Finally, the hand holding the baqueta also carries the kashishi in its palm. A kashishi is a small woven basket with a circle of gourd at the bottom, filled with various things to make a rattle. The most common filling is dry seeds, though some more touristy vendors will fill them with, uh, with shells or pebbles or something like that. Um, there's actually kind of fun stories where um, more serious birimbao players will, will buy the, uh, the kashishis off of uh, the street vendors and empty them out to fill them back up with dry seeds. It just gives them more kind of uh, appropriate sound that people are used to hearing from a kashishi. Now, the kashishi is actually one of the more curious parts of the birimbao tradition because it seems that the use of this uh, birimbao accessory may have been invented within Brazil. So, as we'll talk about in the next section, um, birimbaos are found in, uh, in West Africa. Specifically, they've been observed in, in the, the region of Angola. Um, however, Observations of the Birimbao players in Angola have not included the use of kashishis. In addition, historical illustrations and uh, accounts of uh, Birimbaos, uh, both in the history of Portuguese presence in Africa and in early, early Brazilian history, doesn't show any evidence of a kashishi. This in itself is not a super strong evidence. I'll talk about that a little later, but it's just a part of the, the puzzle here. So if we look at where we can see evidence of kashishis uh, in Brazil, we actually have records of dock workers that were carrying cone-shaped rattles as they worked. These dock workers also were recorded uh, singing call-and-response types chanting, uh, which Rio actually tried to ban, uh, but this failed when the workers refused to work without being able to sing while they worked. Um, there's, a, there's a bit of... Um, I think there's a bit of interplay of Capoeira musical tradition in what we observe uh, in the, 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 work, uh, the work traditions of the, uh, the enslaved Africans in this time period. Um, 
And then if we look to roots in Africa, in both Nigeria and uh, Cameroon, we see records of uh, similar gourd rattles that are used independently. Um, so it seems that we have the similar gourd rattles coming from different African nations where people were taken from that ended up in Brazil. Um, in Brazil, we have evidence of dock workers using these same kind of rattles. And then at some point, we have their incorporation into beat and bow playing. Um, so I think that's a, a, an interesting uh, relationship we see here and potentially evidence that it is a specifically Brazilian invention. So here we've constructed the beat and bow in its modern manifestation. We talked a little bit about the details of its preparation, but where does the instrument actually come from? And wherever that was, how then did it get into Brazil and in parallel Capoeira? The birimbau is part of what is likely the oldest category of instruments that humans have ever created, the musical bow. A musical bow is any instrument that combines a vibrating tension string and a resonator to make uh, one or more tones. These instruments may have existed as early as 15,000 BC, as cave paintings depict someone holding a bow to their face, uh, and they're thought to be offshoots from hunting bows, which were invented in Northern Africa around the same time period. Of course, there's debate on this uh, relationship and this origin, but African shepherds have been known to use a musical bow that looks suspiciously like a hunting bow uh, and use their mouths as the resonator. Many cultures across the world have some sort of musical bow, but I want to focus in on the ones developed in Africa. There's a few different kinds of bows that use uh, a hole in the ground as a resonator, uh, one of which is called the ground zither. Uh, it's found in the Congo Basin as well as Madagascar. With this instrument, a tension string is held horizontally by supports on top of a hole in the ground that's covered by a sheet of rock. The string is hit with sticks, uh, and the covered hole amplifies the sound as the resonator. The Tongo people also play a birimbao-like instrument that's held horizontal with the cord very close to the mouth, uh, which is used as the resonator. Several European travelers made records of um, musical bows that were much more birimbao-like uh, in Africa, uh, with differing names uh, such as hungo or mborumbunda in Angola, Urukumbo or Lokungo in Luanda uh, that were all some sort of musical bow that used a gourd as a resonator uh, and was struck in a similar way that we see modern bows played. Like I said before, though we have many records of bitimbao-like bows being played in the Angola region, none of these records include the simultaneous use of a kashishi. So with this small smattering of information, we know that musical bows are found all over the world, across many cultures, uh, and specifically in Western Africa, there were several types of these bows, some of which are strikingly similar to bows, in that they are a, a single string bow held vertically using a gourd as a resonator. Before we leave 
Africa towards Brazil for this with this story, um, I want to talk about a uh, a myth that gets into the deeply spiritual connection that uh, some of these African cultures had with the musical bow, which I believe has carried forward into the reverence given to the instrument in Capoeira today. So as this myth goes, this is from uh, East and Northern Africa. A young girl went for a walk. Upon crossing a stream, she knelt down and drank water with cupped hands. At the very moment when she had satisfied her thirst, a man dealt her a strong blow on the nape of the neck. As she died, she immediately transformed into a musical bow. Her body became the wood, her limbs the cord, her head the sound box, and her spirit the melancholy and sentimental music. Historian J. Lowell Lewis compares this to something he heard Mestri No say at a capoeira event. Quote, I am capoeira. My body is a birimbau. My skeleton is the verga. My tongue is the dobrão. My head is the caixa de som. One of my arms is the vaqueta. One strand of my coiled hair is the arami. And my rattle as a baby is the kashishi. End quote. So now that we know of the African tradition of the musical bow, is it safe to say that this is strictly an African import? Well, before we can say that, we need to take a look at the people who were already in Brazil, the, uh, the native Brazilians. And when we look at their cultures, they actually did have musical bows. Uh, however, they were not played in the same way uh, as, as the Bidenbao was. They didn't resemble the Bidenbao. Uh, according to records we have from these historians, and all records we have describing people playing bidimbaos, uh, describe them being played by enslaved Africans or their descendants. In addition, since many of the Africans taken into slavery in Brazil were from regions where we see the most bidimbao adjacent bows, it seems to make sense that the proto bidimbao that came to Brazil was uh, imported from Africa. Of course, you can't discount the possibility of influence from the um, from the native Brazilian people, uh, but it from the evidence that we have, it seems to be a primarily uh, African instrument. So now we can take a look at what records we have of bidimbaos being in Brazil. Uh, in 1816, Henry Coster records bidimbao-like instruments in Pernambuco. Between 1816 and 1831, Jean-Baptiste Debré was, uh, was living in Brazil and made an engraving of a bidimbao player. He called it a urucungo, which is pretty similar to names that were recorded uh, from observations in Luanda. In 1832, João Emmanuel Paul made an engraving of what appears to be a vendor with a bidimbao. Uh, his description also relates a monotonous call and response style chanting that went along with the music that was playing. The, the main takeaway here is that several authors through the 19th century observed bidimbao-like instruments called various things, uh, most of which were used and played uh, 
the same way as we see today, though perhaps not um, explicitly in capoeira. So uh, we, I mentioned in those couple examples the, the different names that people were calling the instruments that we know as beat and bows today. So I want to take a quick step back and talk about the names that are used for the beat and bow today, because I think it gives us a little bit more insight on the history and development of the instrument, um, particularly within Brazil. So what are, what are some names that you've heard uh, beat and bows called? Of course, we have beat and bow, uh, we have gunga, we have viola, these are like probably the three most common and you know each of them refers to specific things or, or specific types of beat and bows but these are you know the most common that we uh, associate and the general consensus seems to be gunga is an african name and both beat and bow and viola are portuguese names so let's look into that where does gunga come from so we, we talked a little bit about names of Biedenbau-like instruments that are seen in West Africa. Um, some of those were, uh, were Hungo, Humbo, uh, which is possibly where that's coming from, just with small changes in pronunciation. It's, it's kind of common in the, the translation of these terms over to, um, uh, to, more, to Portuguese-speaking people that uh, H's and G's are exchanged. So th that's one potential route of that etymology. So like I was saying, there is general consensus that gunga is an African-originated term. It's just unclear exactly which path that term came from or how it evolved for from some of the earlier terms. Viola is a Portuguese term for a string instrument, uh, but it's not exactly clear how that came to be referred to Biedenbaus. Uh, and finally, Bidenbao, actually really interestingly, uh, is originally a Portuguese term for a Jew's harp. Um, so a Jew's harp uh, if it is a, um, it's like a mouth spring instrument. You've probably seen one before. It's a, it's a little curved piece of metal that you stick in your mouth, and it has a spring that you hit with your, uh, with your finger. Uh, and actually, this is a kind of musical bow. Uh, because you have, it doesn't use a wire, it uses a spring instead, but it has a, a tensioned piece in there, which is the spring, uh, and it uses your mouth as a resonator. So it is a, um, so you can see how musical bows manifest differently in, in different cultures, but they show up really all over the place. Um, so it could be that this name then transferred over to uh, what we now call the beat and bow because it was another musical bow. Um, it could be that, you know, there are some cases where beat and bow like instruments are used with the mouth as a resonator. So I think there's some possibilities on how that, uh, that name made its way over. So by looking at these relationships, we can see some of the interplay uh, of the African and the Portuguese in the history of the beat and bow, at least in its modern sense. And that goes to even how it looks today. The inclusion of the kashishi may very well be something that happened in Brazil. So to me, like capoeira, like a lot of other um, arts that we see in Brazil, 
to me, that's the difference between what something being purely African and being Afro-Brazilian, having really strong African roots, uh, but having uh, or changing really because of it being in Brazil specifically. Um, similar to our analysis on those arts that occur throughout the diaspora, we can look other places for Biedenbaus. Um, we can look in the Caribbean, and we can even look in the United States. Uh, Biedenbaus are actually found in Cuba. Uh, and a similar instrument was found in Virginia and Maryland that likely evolved into what we now know as a banjo. Uh, the instruments that were found in the United States typically had a, a skin stretched over the gourd mouth, uh, which you can kind of imagine how that ends up evolving into the ban the banjo, which uses kind of like a, a drum snare head um, as the cover over the resonator. So now that we see the Biedenbau in Brazil, my next question is how did the instrument become associated with capoeira? Was it associated from the very beginning or is it a later addition? Looking at the research of Dr. Deshobi into African martial arts, uh, I am first tempted to say the two were not always associated. In his observations of both Nsanga and Angolu, which are two of maybe the most likely origins of Capoeira, he notes that there's singing in the circle, but no mention of any instruments. In addition, the famous Rugendas Capoeira painting from 1824 shows only a drum, but it's hard to necessarily draw a conclusion from that. We have to keep in mind that the people who made these records uh, of Capoeira were outsiders and didn't really always understand the things they were observing. Um, and you can kind of tell that in some historical records of uh, even of Biedenbaus that kind of say nonsensical things once you actually know how to play the instrument. Uh, for example, there's, um, there's a record of, someone made a record of a, uh, a, a Biedenbau where the gourd was just hung from the, the, the verga, like loosely, which when you play a Biedenbau, it doesn't make any sense. But if you see the instrument hung up like that, you might not necessarily know if it's just being stored or if that's how it's played. Uh, so it's easy to get confused when you look back at some of these records. Um, though we will say that looking at historical records of Capoeira through this time period, there is no explicit mention of Biedenbaus being used in conjunction. On the other side of things, there is also evidence that the Biedenbau has been tied to Capoeira for some significant amount of time. Messi Paschina said that he changed nothing from what his master taught him and emphasized the importance of the Biedenbau, which he called the, quote, principal and indispensable instrument. Bastien's master was already an old man when he taught him uh, at the turn of the 1900s, so it would suggest that the Biedenbau was in Capoeira as early as, say, the mid-1800s. Um, we get some confirmation of this in Bahia in 1814. Here, a petitioner wrote to Don Juan, the prince regent, complaining about Africans playing a single-string instrument and doing batuki. Quote, A group of blacks, the sort who normally hire out their services at the custom house dock, cut the ropes that bound a prisoner. They released him, 
threatening the two soldiers with knives, since their batukis have been allowed, gathering together to play a single-string instrument, and agitating the city. It is since all this is permitted that we have witnessed most of the acts of violence and disobedience." End quote. In this time period, the terms batuki and capoeira were used kind of interchangeably, so it's difficult to know exactly which art was being complained about here. What this information suggests to me is that the birimbao and capoeira have been associated with each other at least since the 1800s, but I think it's unlikely that it was always associated, even from its protoforms in Africa. It seems that this relationship was developed by the African people specifically in Brazil during that country's early history. It's pretty clear that the, the Africans in Brazil were making changes to the musical bow, uh, such as the addition of the kashishi, so it seems likely to me that other changes would also occur uh, in their cultural arts. This may not be a very definitive answer, but in the world of capoeira, we always have to learn to accept not getting simple, easy-to-digest answers. There's always contradiction, unknowns, and maybes throughout all of the history that we talk about. So to wrap up this episode, what have we learned today about the Bidabao? We talked about the construction of the instrument itself and went into a bit of detail on each of its components. We then took a dive into the broader history of musical bows and how the Bidabao fits into that history. Finally, we moved into how the bow came to Brazil and its introduction into capoeira. And what we can say is that the Bidabao is part of the oldest musical traditions that humans have and traces back to African origins. Changes occurred when it came to Brazil, as they did everywhere else it went, and at some point it was adopted into capoeira. It's really not known when the Bidimbao was brought into capoeira, who brought it, why it was brought, but I think it's safe to say it's been there since at least the 1800s. Just like with many of our other topics, much of this story remains shrouded in mystery. And I want to end our discussion of the Bidimbao with uh, this, this one quote from Mestria Kojion that, that really stuck with me. He says, quote, The Bidimbao can pacify the soul when played in melancholy solos. The rhythm is black and strong, a deep and powerful pulse that reaches the heart. It inundates mind, space, and time with intensity of an ocean tide. The dense aura that emanates from the single musical bow slowly envelops you. Without your realizing it, the powerful magic of the Bidimbao has tamed your soul. End quote. So thank you everyone who's made it this far listening through this episode. Uh, it's really nice to be back doing this. It feels good to be uh, doing this research again, recording these episodes. Um, and I want to say again, I really appreciate everyone who has been listening, who's been reaching out to me about this. Special shout out to the folks in San Antonio. Special shout out to the folks in Ukiah. Really appreciate you guys. Um, and I'm looking forward to meeting a whole lot more of you all uh, going forward. Uh, I did want to say one additional thing. So this coming January, uh, actually Saturday, January 21st, um, Contra Mestre Martel will be having his More Than Capoeira event 
um, and I've been invited to uh, be a part of the Capoeira podcast panel discussion. Um, really looking forward to that, um, and honestly, incredibly honored to be invited to come down and be a part of the discussion. So if you're in the area, please do stop by. Um, it looks like it's going to be a really fun event. Um, Martel is an awesome guy, awesome capoeirista. So please, please, please come support. Uh, and yeah, hopefully I'll see you there. So thanks again. And we'll be back again with the next episode in, I promise, the not-too-distant future this time. Um, and with that, take care, and I'll see you then. Bye.